Well, the rest of you that are here, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to jump into our study. Uh, we are coming today to one of the greatest chapters in the Bible ever penned by Paul. It has been called the hymn of love. It's been called the, uh, the lyrical interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's even been called the Beatitudes set to music. Now, you won't find music in this passage, but it is very uh, lyrical, almost poetic. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that even people who are not familiar with the Bible have heard some of the verses from this chapter that we find ourselves in because many times these verses are read at weddings. You hear these verses read at weddings. I've read them at weddings many times to, uh, to express the love that should exist between husband and a wife. But that's not why Paul wrote it. He didn't write this to express the love between a husband and a wife. He wrote this to instruct the church on the kind of love that should exist between believers. The kind of love that should exist in the church. If you remember, Paul left us hanging in verse 31 of chapter 12 that he was going to show us a more excellent way, right? He talked about the gifts and how great they are, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Well, this is the more excellent way that he referred to. In fact, if you look at that verse uh, 31, just to remind you, he said, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. That word, and we looked at this briefly last week, earnestly desire is zelao. And I don't think I had time to show you the actual Greek word there, but I just mentioned it. It's used in two ways in the New Testament. It's used in a positive sense or in a negative sense. It's the same word there, and the, what tells us if it's positive or negative is the context here. Um, so it can be positive in the sense that uh, to zealously desire things earnestly, or it can be to covet or to envy. And if you remember, the Corinthians were plagued by those things like pride and jealousy and covetousness, selfishness. And so Paul's letter to the Corinthians really up to this point has been corrective, hasn't it? Corrective in, in nature, and therefore it's been rather uh, negative. And so I think probably when he gets to the end of that, he's really kind of uh, making more of a statement than a command. But you earnestly covet these things. You're coveting these things. Let me just show you a better way. And so we come to the better way. It's not a negative sort of chapter. In fact, it should feel a, like a bit of fresh air to you. Um, it's a bit of an oasis in the midst of correction and reproof. However, don't get too comfortable <laughs> because we're reading about agape love. And as you read these things through and realize this is the kind of love that God wants his people to have, it's quite challenging. Now, I, interesting note here. The first sermon I ever preached, ever, in, in big church, as we used to call it, <laughs> adult church, was on this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. So it's quite a, kind of funny coming to it today. Our church wasn't even going through 1 Corinthians. Um, it was just my pastor wanted to give me a shot at, at preaching. Actually, it wasn't a shot. He's like, you're going to preach. That's, <laughs> it wasn't a choice. Um, and he gave me a passage, quote, I couldn't mess up, <laughs> because it's a very simple passage. In fact, you can take it out of context right? And you could read it and you could get, oh, you get so much for it, from it. You could appreciate it uh, greatly because of how beautifully he writes this. And I did go and find my original sermon. I found it way in the recesses of my hard drive and looked at it. And, um, and I was a little worried to see if, if I had actually set it up in its proper context or not, because I was just starting out, right? Um, and to my relief, I, I did. Uh, um, and you know, this passage, like I said, you can, you can appreciate it outside of the context. But if you really want to understand the deep 
beauty that this passage has for us, we have to understand its setting. And that's why it's so fun for me to come to it in the middle of our study of 1 Corinthians. We know what's happened before, and and I'm going to tell you what happens afterwards. In fact, 12 to 14 is all about spiritual gifts. And chapter 12 is all about the endowment and the receipt of those gifts, right? The Spirit distributes to each one individually as he wills. He had told us in verse 11 of chapter 12. And then he went on to say that we are members of one body, and that uh, is composed by God. God composes that body. And all the members, while they are many, are part of one organic whole. We're a living organism. And so we need all the members to function properly for the church to function properly. That's chapter 12. And then what comes afterwards, chapter 14, is all about the function of the gifts, how they are to be properly used. They're to be used for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He's going to say that in verse 3 of chapter 14. And they're not to be used to create strife and confusion. And he says that in verse 33. So we know how they are to be used and not to be used. But in the middle, wedged in the middle, this chapter 13 is all about the proper motive. The motive behind using those gifts. Why should you use your gifts? The motive, obviously, is love. That's the motive. The world tries to define love for us today, and that's a whole other sermon I don't even have time to go into, right? They try to tell you what love is, and they tell you through songs and movies and music and all those things, and they have not a clue. Uh, in fact, we're rather lousy at defining love as well because, well, we only have one word for it, love, right? For me to say, I love to go and walk through antique bookshops and also say, I love my wife, are two very different kinds of love. They are. <laughs> In the Greek, though, there are three words for love. So that makes it a little easier to understand what love we're talking about. There's eros, which is the erotic love. That's the kind of love that, you know, should be between a husband and wife. But there's also the phileo love, phileo love, the brotherly love. Uh, You heard of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the kind of love that should exist in a church. Eros doesn't show up in the New Testament, but phileo does. But also agape love, and that's the love we find in this passage today. That's the sacrificial love of the will. And it focuses on the will, doesn't focus on the pleasure of eros, but also doesn't focus on the emotions of the phileo. It is a sacrificial love. And guess what? The church needs this kind of love. It needs agape love. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the word agape, which means he wants us to agape one another. Now, the Corinthians, we're told that they lacked no gift back in chapter 1. You lacked no gift. But what they did lack was agape love. And so that's why Paul is setting out in this chapter to correct the misuse of the gifts by teaching on the proper motive behind the gifts. They need love. They need the agape love. So this is really a comprehensive study of love, and really no such chapter like it exists in all of Scripture. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it. If you tear it apart too much, you lose the beauty. So I don't want to lose the beauty of this chapter and tear apart it too much and say, well, we're going to do verse 1 today, right? We're just going to tear it in half, okay? We'll do half today, and then we'll do the other half next week. And in this, we're going to see several points, and I'll point those out as we go along the way. But let's read the passage. We'll read all of it today. It's just 13 verses. Beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, 
but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I, uh, sorry, I lost my say. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this amazing chapter we get to study today. Lord, on love, I pray that your spirit would be with us, Lord, to illuminate the truth of this chapter, Lord, that we Lord, be open to the teaching. Yes, it's just about love, but not just any love, agape love, the deep sacrificial love, the love that you showed for us, Lord. So I pray that you would just help us to see how wonderful this love is and, Lord, how we might strive to uh, replicate this kind of love in our own lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to see four things, but not all of them today. We're going to look at the prominence of love the properties of love, the permanence of love, and the preeminence of love, all P's there for you. But today we'll just start with the prominence of love, verses 1, 2, 3. And he begins by giving us three examples. The first one is in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And just to note at the beginning, though, the word though, um, it's just a very simple word. It's a conditional particle, and it really means if or in case. Because it's a, it's a word that is in connection with other, other particles to really denote something that's uncertain. So often it's, um, it's, it's translated if or maybe except or though. My Bible says though. And so if it's though is confusing for you, use if. And I think it's helpful. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Think about it that way. Now, notice he says tongues as well. This is the same word we looked at before, the glossa. It can mean the member of the body, your tongue, but it also can mean the um, actual uh, language or dialect, and that's the, the word we used in chapter 12. Now, what is Paul saying here? He says something very interesting, right? First, he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. Speak in the tongues of angels. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? Well, guess what? A lot of people look at this and say, well, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, talking about you can speak in the tongues of, of angels. And they do. They look at this and they pull out this concept of, of a unique, maybe uh, angelic language. And Paul is introducing a new, a new gift here. Well, Paul is not doing that here. Paul is speaking in hyperbolic language. You know what hyperbolic language is? We do it all the time. We say things like, oh, I was, I was on hold forever. Or, uh, oh, there was, there was a million people at the park yesterday. Um, or uh, I, you guys say this, I've, it's been that way for donkey's years. I don't know what donkey's years means, folks. Someone help me out. But we don't actually mean, like, I've been on hold forever, right? 
because you wouldn't be able to share that with me because you'd still be on hold, <laughs> all right? We don't mean a million people. What do we mean? A long time, all right? Or a lot of people. It's hyperbole. Paul is doing the same thing here. He uses the same idea. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, he's saying, right? If I spoke with the greatest fluency on earth and all the languages of earth and even of angels, that's what he's doing there, okay? That's what he's trying to get across, not some idea of a new angelic language. And if you kind of have heard that before, I'm going to give you three reasons why it can't be that real quick. All of the gifts are for the edification of the body of Christ, right? We're told that. We're told that in, in uh, Ephesians 4.11. We've been looking at that a lot of times. 14 chap- chapter 14, verse 12 says it as well. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church, right? An angelic language, you do nothing to edify the body of Christ. Paul will address that in chapter 14 when he talks about the gift of tongues. Second reason is angels always spoke in the languages of the people to whom they visited. Go read your Bible. No angel ever showed up to a man and said, I'm gonna you know, he just, the guy would be like, well, I don't know what he's saying, right? Never. Uh, you always see angels appearing and speaking in the known language of the person. Even Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, right? He goes and he hears seraphim speaking, but he hears what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And listen, even when the angel appeared in front of Balaam's donkey, right? The angel spoke in a known language to the man, and even the donkey did. The donkey didn't go back, right? He, he spoke in the known language. We don't have any examples of that in Scripture. It's kind of silly to think that they would be that. And also, the third obvious reason is that we're never instructed in Scripture to speak in an angelic language, and here's how you do it and so forth, okay? That's not Paul's point. What's his point? He says, if I could speak every known language in existence in heaven and on earth, but I don't have love, then I'm a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. That's his point. What's the meaning of comparing that to to musical instruments? Well, think about a clanging cymbal. (laughs) Don't think about it too long because it just goes ting, right? But what happens to the noise it makes? It eventually dissipates, right? It's not lasting. It just makes a bunch of noise at the beginning, and it just sort of fades away. They have a momentary effect. That's the idea. It doesn't produce anything of lasting value. Now, in Corinth, the gift of tongues was the most sought-after gift. That's what everybody wanted. You'll see that in chapter 14. And so they wanted it not to use the gift, but to, for the prominence that came with it, the prestige, the praise, right? And so basically their motivation was pride. Now, they were exercising gifts through then their own power, right? If you have pride and you're exercising gifts, you're doing it in your own power, which means it's a fleshly manifestation of the gift or a counterfeit. Follow me here, because it can't be of the spirit, right? Because pride is not a fruit of the spirit. Just go through them. They're not there, right? Love is. You can't exercise the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit being manifest in your life, and you can't manifest the fruit of the Spirit without walking in the Spirit. And if you are not walking in the Spirit, you're walking in what? What are we walking in, Mark? The flesh. That's right. Galatians 5, 16. We've been talking about this verse. I'm not pointing Mark out and walking in the flesh. No, that's not what's happened there. Galatians 5, 16. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The implication being that if you aren't walking in the spirit, then you are walking in the flesh. So you must be walking in the spirit and then you'll manifest the fruit of the spirit of which pride is not one of them. Okay. And then you'll thereby be able to exercise the gift of the spirit. So the gift of languages without love, which is what was happening in Corinth, is like words without 
power. They're just, they're just words. They're empty words. So Paul is saying, listen, you can have these amazing gifts of tongues, but if the fruit of the spirit of love, right, is not present, then it has no lasting value. It only produces noise. In essence, you produce nothing because it doesn't last, right? At the end, you end with nothing. Example two is in verse two. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, three areas of giftedness are mentioned here. You have prophecy, you have knowledge, and faith. And we talked about prophecy. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it when we went through the gifts. Um, just one quick note. You might have the gift of italicized in your Bible. That means those three words are not in the original Greek. But I do believe still Paulus probably does have the spiritual gift in mind because we're in the context of spiritual gifts. So don't let that throw you off. But anyway, he is uh, talking about this. If I have the gift of, of prophecy, and, and Paul thinks that's a good gift. He, he highlights it as a, a one that you know, should, we should especially desire to see exercised in a church. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So in Paul's mind, prophecy is a very important gift. And that word, prophema, is two words, pro, forth, femi, to speak, to speak forth, um, which means speaking forth the mind and counsel of God. It's a gift of proclaiming, if you remember going through that. So Paul is saying that even an extremely important gift like prophecy really accomplishes nothing if it's not accompanied by love. Then he says, there's also, uh, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, right? Mysteries and knowledge. Listen, every time you see that word mystery in Scripture, always, okay, always, it refers to a divine truth that God has hidden from men. Most of the times, it refers to an Old Testament uh, truth that was hidden from Old Testament saints, but revealed to New Testament saints, revealed in the New, most of the time. But every single time, it means something that God has hidden from men. And then knowledge, we looked at that gift as well, which... Um, just means the knowledge to understand God's word, to get the biblical facts, the understanding, and the proper conclusions. So you just dig in and dig it all out. So if you put all that together, Paul is saying, and suppose also that I could understand all of the revealed biblical truths, but also the hidden ones as well. Okay, that's what he's saying. So suppose I could do all that. This is hyperbole again, right? All mysteries, all knowledge. And then he adds one more, and all faith, faith. Though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains. And we looked at that reference when we looked at the gift of faith in chapter 12, verse 9. It, Jesus mentions it in Matthew 17, 20. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of anyone moving an actual mountain through prayer? Now, I did give an example, an illustration of a church that prayed for a mountain to be removed from the back of their building, right? Um, but it didn't move from here to there in the same form, right? It was dug away and filled in in a landfill. But that's what Jesus is saying. Like this kind of faith would say to a mountain, I want you to go there, and it would go there. The point is this. It's unheard of faith, right? It's just crazy faith to think about that. And that's Paul's point, right? These are super extremes. If I had all of these gifts, but I don't have love, what's he say? I am nothing. I'm a zero, so they just thought all these gifts were great. He's like, listen, I could have the extreme of all those gifts, but if I don't have love, I'm absolutely nothing. Now, think about the examples we looked at so far. Can you think of a prophet who could understand mysteries, have the gift of knowledge, who had incredible faith and yet didn't have any love? Jonah, right? You think of Jonah. I mean, Jonah's amazing because he gets this, you know, command from God to go preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. But he goes the other way. He runs to Tarshish and he knows he's disobeying. 
But let me ask you, why did he flee? Does anyone know? Why did he go the other way? He, he wasn't afraid of success, was he? He was. That's what it was. We go, oh, he was afraid to fail. No, he was afraid that, that actually it would work, that he would go and they would repent. You know why? He hated the Ninevites. He didn't want them to, to, to receive forgiveness. And that's why when you see after the whole thing happens, he gets swallowed by a fish and he gets thrown up on the land and he goes and preaches the message of repentance. The very next verse, the very next thing you see out of his mouth is this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry, right? A whole city of people repent. He goes, I knew it. And then you have the worst prayer in the Bible. This is what he prays. So he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Right? Why do you have to be that kind of God? Can you believe there's a, such a prayer? This is Jonah. It's amazing. He had the kind of faith in his heart about God that he would be able to just save an entire city of people, that kind of faith, but he had zero love. He could care less about these people. Paul says, if I have a plurality of amazing gifts, but I don't have love, I am nothing. That preaching brought about a great salvation, but the preacher was nothing. Example three, verse three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, these are good works, right? That's what he's talking about, benevolence. And, and it, it, Christians are called to do good works. We are. In fact, Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But they're to be done out of love, right? And for the glory of God. That's why we should do those things. But Paul, he gives us two of the most sacrificial acts a Christian can perform. Give all your possessions away, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, he says. Now, I want to highlight that word bestow because we looked at the word bestow back in chapter 12, verse 23, and it was a different word. Bestow there was peritithemi, and it meant to put a garment around. You remember that? We bestow greater honor on our less honorable parts. We put a garment around those. This is a different word for bestow. It is somizo. It literally means to feed or to give something in order to feed. That is the whole idea here. If I gave away everything so that I could feed the world, right? You have the hungry of the world. If I just gave it all away, that's, that's, that's benevolence, right? I don't have anything left. I just want to feed everybody, right? Give it all away. Or what's the other extreme? I give my life away, right? Martyrdom. If I give my body to be burned, he says. It's hard to imagine that such a sacrifice like this would be motivated by self-interest or, or pride. But did you know that people did that? People sought, uh, sought martyrdom um, as a way of becoming famous or even maybe seeking some special heavenly reward. You know, people do that today. They blow themselves up. You know what? That's not out of love. That's self-seeking. Hey, it's an in instant entrance into paradise. And also, it's out of hate. I want to kill people, and I want to go to paradise, right? Paul is saying, what if I just gave everything I had, my life as well, gave it to be burned? Well, self-sacrifice motivated by self, that's nothing as well. Nothing's gained. All of these examples are, are saying that. The loveless person produces nothing, he is nothing, and he gains nothing. That's his point. That's his opening words here. So now he's saying, you see the importance of love? You see what's lacking? So let me tell you what biblical agape love is. And now he starts on the most comprehensive list of the fullness of love in all of the scripture. Now there's 15, 15 properties or qualities of love given here by Paul. And they help us understand uh, what love really is. He explores all the assets of, or uh, facets of this. 
And you should note that the Greek forms are all verbs. So they don't focus so much on what, it, what love is in itself as so much as what love does. It's always in action, okay? And I would encourage you, as we look at this, the properties of love, verses 4 to 7, if you're not a note taker, to at least jot these down. Because I see, these, I see this up in people's houses, right? Beautifully framed, you know, love is kind, love is suffering. But we really need to pull those out a bit and look at it a little bit deeper and realize what he's saying here. Because these are quite challenging. Let's look at verse 4, the properties of love. The first one he lists here is love suffers long. Look at verse 4, love suffers long. There it is right at the beginning. Now that word suffers long is one word in the Greek. Um, it's hard to say, makrothumeo, that's what it is, makrothumeo, and it means to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. It specifically has that idea of being patient with people. That's used nine times in the New Testament, and almost every single time, that's what it refers to. It's translated patient, and it not, not in circumstances, but with people. So suffering long at the hands of others. Think about that. I don't want to suffer long at all, right, for people, much less long, right? But Paul, he asked these Corinthians way back in 1 Corinthians 6, right? He said, you know, when they were suing one another, why wouldn't you rather just be cheated? You remember him saying that? Why not rather just accept wrong? That's mind-blowing for us. I can't be wronged. I can't be cheated. But he asked the Corinthians to think about that. I really never hear about Christians letting themselves be cheated these days, right? If we su suffer a wrong, well, we want justice. That's, that's what we want. But listen, this is a love that doesn't want that. This is a love that doesn't retaliate. We're told to repay no one evil for evil, right? In the Greek word, this kind of patient love would have been considered a, a weakness because Aristotle, right, the Greek philosopher, he taught that to, to, to take an insult or an injury, right, without retaliation was a sign of weakness. But listen, this kind of love patiently endures and it forgives and it does it over and over and over again. Do you remember when Peter came to Jesus with that great question, he said, oh, Lord, how often shall I allow my brother to sin against me and still forgive him? And then he thinks he's really going high. I mean, up to say seven times? Because that's a lot. Seven times. Think about it. Seven times someone offended me and I, I forgive him. I, <laughs> I love that question because Jesus said, uh, no, not up to seven times, up to 70 times seven. Now, Peter didn't walk away and go, oh, got it. Okay, so 490 times. All right, I'm going to start tracking. That wasn't the point of Jesus' answer. It wasn't to give us a number. It was to say, no, no, <laughs> you just keep forgiving. That's the idea. This is the love that Jesus talked about when your left uh, cheek is slapped, you offer the right. right. That's the idea. Of course, the supreme example of this kind of love is God himself, isn't it? He patiently endures today unbelief, ridicule, slander, murder of millions of babies, right? He, this is the things he endures. And yet we're told that he's patient. He suffers long. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, there's that word, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There was a well-known agnostic named Robert Ingersoll. In fact, he was nicknamed the great agnostic. I don't know what it's like to have that kind of name, but he was a lawyer and an orator, and he was famous for giving speeches against God and then stopping in the middle and saying, okay, now I'm going to give God five minutes to strike me dead for what I said. And he would wait those five minutes. And then he would use the fact that he's still alive as proof and evidence that God doesn't exist. And there was a minister at the time that said this, and I thought this was such a great 
um, thing to respond with of that man's claim. He said this, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? Five minutes, and I'm going to drain you of all your eternal patience. You'd be standing a lot longer than five minutes. God was pretty patient with me. That's the kind of love we need to have. Suffers long. What else? Number two, and is kind. And is kind. If patience is a willingness to take anything, well, kindness is a willingness to give anything. That's the kindness here. It desires another's welfare, but then it works for it. It's an active thing, okay? It's not just, well, I hope you do well, but it actively pursues that, not just uh, feeling kindly about others, but actively showing kindness. It's kind of love that we're to have for our, our enemies, Jesus talked about, right? In Matthew 5, 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. What is God's kindness meant to do? He has kindness, right? What's it meant to do for us? You want to have a passage in their brain to lead us somewhere, to lead us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? That same word could be kindness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. In fact, the word kind in our passage today is, uh, uh, is only used here. But the root word of it, which is Christos, is used in that uh, passage in Matthew eleven thirty, 30, where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the word easy. My yoke is kind, is what Jesus is saying. That's interesting. I think what Jesus means by that then is that for his children, for the people that he loves, he makes uh, what he requires of them, right? He makes that thing that we have to bear actually bearable. He's considerate of us. He considers that. For the Corinthians to be kind, they must give up their selfish, jealous, proud attitudes, right? Because kindness gives and it doesn't take. So those are the first two kind of positives that he starts with. Love suffers long and is kind. And then he launches into eight negative descriptions. So these are all what love is not. But I'll also point out what the opposite of what it will be as we go through it. So number three is love does not envy. Now, this envy is the same word for that earnestly desire that we saw back in chapter 12, verse 31, right? Zelao, which here it's obviously translated in the negative, right? Because he doesn't want love to be having envy, which is another reason in terms of hermeneutics while, why verse 31 should probably be translated the same way because usually you translate the verb in the same context. But in any case, um, he says, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Envy, jealousy, those kind of things. Uh, envy, I think sometimes we think it's sort of a moderate sin, maybe, right? Tolerable. Um, listen, envy is a mark of carnality. It was uh, quite prevalent in Corinth, and Paul talked about it back in chapter 3. When he defined what carnality was, he says envy, strife, and those things exist there. But listen to what James says about envy. Pretty powerful. James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Well, let me tell you, there was great confusion in Corinth and certainly evil. But think about what envy uh, caused in the Bible. Just go back into your 
you know, the, the history there. I mean, even Eve was envious of God. That's why she ate the fruit in a sense, right? The first murder was committed because of envy. Joseph was sold into slavery because of envy. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of envy, right? Envy just causes great harm. It's not just a, a moderate little sin. It's harmful. In fact, there's a proverb that says that cruel and anger, hey, those things are a, a torrent, but who can stand before jealousy? Well, I can tell you who can stand before jealousy, the one who has agape love. That's the one. Because Paul gives us a great example of that. You might remember Paul was in prison. Uh, he was in Rome. And while, uh, while he was in prison, some Christians were out there trying to outdo Paul in this preaching ministry. So they're actually trying to do it to sort of uh, overshadow him and really harm him. And Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. He said this, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. He goes on to say that, that they were doing that to add affliction to his chains. Okay, so he's in prison, and people are actually preaching out of envy. And they're like, well, now is the time to like, you know, overshadow him. How does agape love respond to harm from others? Oh, it suffers long. It patiently endures. See what Paul says in that passage? He says, what about it? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in that I greatly rejoice. Right? I don't care what their motivation was, but if they're preaching the gospel, I'll rejoice in that. He didn't care. He was just happy that the gospel was getting preached. So that's what love isn't. It doesn't envy. What is it? Then it rejoices in the blessings of others. You see a brother or sister getting blessed by God, don't be envious. Rejoice that they are being blessed by God. Fourth, love does not parade itself. I have to go through these kind of quick. There's 15 of them. Love does not parade itself, verse 4 as well. This word means uh, to talk conceitedly. So it speaks about speaking of itself, boasting. Maybe your Bible says love does not boast. This person that has this is the person that's desperate for praise, like Simon the sorcerer. Do you remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? This is what it says about him, that he was a, a man called Simon. He was a sorcerer and uh, in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, right? He went around saying, I am great. I am great. I don't know. Listen, I think Christians should be more concerned about making Christ's name great. That's the name we're supposed to be making great. I think a lot of people who vaunt those more, you know, spectacular gifts, gifts of healings and tongues or whatever, I hear them talking a whole lot about their ministries and them, not so much about Christ. I think that's probably a give, giveaway. Love doesn't parade itself. Love doesn't talk conceitedly. It was the great British theologian J.N.D. Kelly who would preach, and then once in a while he would just burst into spiritual songs, right? And he would just, a hymn would come in his mind, and he would just start singing it. And one time he, he burst out into the hymn, The Call, and I looked up the words, and it contained this phrase, Lord, let me wait for thee alone. My life be only this, to serve thee here on earth unknown, then share thy heavenly bliss. Now, there's a man. <laughs> there's a man you want to emulate. He died in 1882, but apparently that is inscribed on his memorial stone in Bournemouth Cemetery. He was a man that wasn't concerned with making a name for himself, but making a name for Christ. So this is the love that promotes and praises others. That's that love. And I think the next one is, pro, you know, closely linked to it. Uh, it's in verse 4 as well. It's not puffed up. So it doesn't parade itself, but it's also not puffed up. And that word puffed up, fuseo, Paul has been using all throughout Corinthians. They're the puffed up people, if you remember, right? He just kept saying, you're puffed up, you're puffed up. Six times out of the seven times in the New Testament, he's talking about the Corinthians. Uh, the puffed up church is what you could call them. 
It says they were puffed up on behalf of one against another. Some of them were puffed up about Paul not coming to them. Some of them were puffed up over power. Um, he said some of them were puffed up over their sin. And even at the end, in um, chapter 8, he said knowledge puffs up, right? They were puffed up over their knowledge. Listen, this is a proud person. This is an arrogant person. No one likes an arrogant person. The only love that is communicated from people like that is a love for themselves, right? No, no one's attracted to that. And I, I, think God, I think God hates pride most of all. It's hard to say that, but, but Scripture even says that. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate, says Proverbs 8.13. I think it's worse than both boasting because it's related to power. Boasting says, I want your praise. Give me your praise, right? But, but arrogance says, I want your power. It's about power. Think about it. Whose downfall was about pride and related to power? Lucifer, right? Satan. He wanted God's power. You read about in Isaiah, all those six I wills that he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He wanted the power of God, which would come with the praise, I'm sure. When Jesus began to preach, you know, his ministry quickly overshadowed that of a other well-known preacher at the time, John the Baptist. And John certainly could have been, wait, hold on a second, right? I got some more time in the, in the glory here, in the spotlight. But, but he wasn't that way at all. He's the one that said, it's he who's coming after me who is more worthy of me, whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to unloose, right? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's John the Baptist. And I think in a church, pride is ex exhibited when we are just stubborn and fight for our own ways, right? Fight for what we want. This is love that isn't proud. It's, it's not arrogant, so it's, it's humble. It's, it's modest. And I think it's humble in two ways, in service and how you serve and in conduct. Number six, love does not behave rudely. Doesn't behave rudely, verse five. Love is considerate of others. You could say it that way which is what rude people have nothing of, right? They don't, they don't consider others. They don't have consideration of other people. And that was the Corinthians' problems around the, the, the sup, last supper, right? The supper meal, right? They were grabbing all the food and leaving others hungry, and some were already drunk and others hadn't even eaten because they were inconsiderate. They were just uh, rude. You know what? I think these are the people that, that sometimes say things like whatever they want to say to someone, and they go, well, sometimes the truth hurts. I'm just telling it like it is. Listen, sometimes you don't need to say anything. <laughs> Those are the people who think they're in that place of judging. Well, let me just tell you. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just speaking truth. I'm a truth speaker. That's what I do. No, I would say you're rude. And I would say you also aren't being considered of anybody, and you're not considering Scripture that tells us that our speech should always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. That's a rude, rude person. Not considerate. Certainly was happening in Corinth. Pray doesn't happen here. Any church shouldn't happen anywhere. Number seven, does not seek its own. This is also in verse five, does not seek its own. If you think about Paul, uh, he wanted to send Timothy to Philippi at one point. Now he's writing to Philipp the Philippians. He said, I want to send Timothy to you. <laughs> the reason he said, I want to send Timothy to you, he says, because there's no one like-minded. It's just hard to think that. No one like-minded, but no one, he says, who will sincerely care for your state. Why? For they all seek their own. But he, Timothy didn't have that. He, I knew if I sent this guy, he'll think about you. You know, I think this is the love that's occupied with the good of others, not seeking their own good, looking at others' situation and wanting to help them. 
Philippians 2, 3, and 4, very famous verse, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So yeah, we, we look out for ourselves, of course. We don't neglect our home or ourselves, but, but we're to look out for others. But also, what's he say? Consider them other, better than you. I don't, we often do that, do we? That's a hard love to follow. So far, anyone like tracking? Everyone's like, yep, tick that one, tick that one. <laughs> right? Anyone got seven straight? This is hard, right? You start reading this go, oh my goodness. Paul is though, he's pulling it apart. Listen, this is the kind of love. You want to emulate agape love. It's all for us to go, ooh, is this an area I need to work on, God? How about number eight? Love is not provoked. Also in verse five, I think easily angered might be the version you have. Easily angered or irritable. Listen, something about anger. Anger is always a moral matter. It always is, okay? Just to understand anger. It, it weighs something or someone in the balance, okay? And it says, or whatever it is, and it says, that displeases me, uh, that lacks in this way. And you feel so strongly about it that you must react to it, right? That's the idea of, of anger. It says, I'm moved to feel strongly about something. Um, and it's a pos- in a position of judge. <laughs> it's, it's like, I'm going to be the moral judge of what everyone is doing. And we do it when we're in the cars, right? This person is too slow for me. How dare this person block the road that belongs to me? That's, the, that's anger. We get angry, right? It, you're in a position to judge all of a sudden. Like, you own the road? Listen, God was testing me on this on the way here because I was behind every slow person incarnate, right? I'm, I'm like, oh, I can't believe. Oh, yeah. Take your time. Jesus loves you. You know what, though? To be serious, though, sometimes I think we go, oh, but I have a right to be angry. This is an angry thing. And a lot of times for Christians, we say, you know, it's an er area I have a righteous anger on, right? We say, oh, I have a righteous anger. Listen, I want to make sure you understand you you will be judged in two things. One, you'll be judged on your criteria. What are you really angry about? And two, how you reacted to that. You might be very angry about what you hear about abortion. You might be very angry that someone committed adultery and Right, you might, but if you go and gossip about that person and slander, you curse, you go burn down buildings that are doing abortions, you're you're right to be angry about something, but God's going to judge you for your reaction. It was wrong, so both those things have to be right. And the person that's easily angered, I don't think they have either of those in the right place. They sit as the moral judge above all else and say, "You have displeased me, and now I will let you know." Fathers, we might have a hard time with that. Like you get tired from a day's work and you come home and the kids are noisy, right? I mean, it's, it's like, it's my kingdom, my castle, quiet in my realm, right? That's the idea. We're easily angered sometimes, and we have, to, we have to pull that back and say, that's not agape love. This, I'm not saying let your kids just be unruly and scream all day long, but you know what I'm, I'm saying? Sometimes it comes from just an irritability, right? Love is not easily provoked. Number nine, it thinks no evil. This is also in verse five. This is an interesting word. It keeps no record of wrongs, um, might be how it's translated in your Bible. The Greek word is uh, logizomai, logizomai, and it, it's, a, it's a bookkeeping word. It means to take into account or to, to reckon or to impute, okay? So it thinks no evil, it keeps no record of wrongs, it, meaning it's not keeping a ledger full of all the wrongs that have been done against it. That's, that's resentment, right? When you keep like, oh, but I remember back in 1982, you did this, and 1990, this happened, and, right? Listen, gape love quenches wrong. It doesn't record them. That's agape love. I think someone once said, love does not forgive, 
uh, and forget, or, or, or forgives, does forgive and forget, but, but uh, I think it's rather this. I think love remembers and yet still forgives. So I don't think we easily forget. You remember it, but you still forget. That's biblical love. That's agape love. Now, when you're talking about God, you can take that first one. Forgotten and forgiven, both. God doesn't keep a ledger of sins. And I think we need to remember that when we're quick to start take account of other sins. Romans 4.8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's the same word, logizomai. He doesn't keep your sin in a record. Don't keep a record of other sins. Number 10, we're almost there. Hang on. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. This is in verse 6. Does not rejoice in iniquity. It means it takes no uh, malicious pleasure in uh, the mistakes of others, inadequacies of others, sins of others. I think some people literally wish others to fall into sin, right? They just <laughs> have a feeling for someone to the point like, I just hope they fall. I, what, I hope that doesn't happen, right? That would be just terrible. But I have heard of it happening. Sin is an affront to God. He hates it. So we should never rejoice in sin. We would never want anybody to fall into sin. We don't want that to happen. So love does not rejoice in iniquity. And that ends the eight negatives, the nots in there. And we finish with five more positives. So stick with me. We're almost there. In verse 6, but what does it do? It rejoices in the truth. It's sort of the opposite of that. It doesn't keep the record of wrongs. It doesn't keep the, the iniquities in a list, right? And it doesn't rejoice in those things. It isn't glad to see those things happen. But also instead it rejoices in the truth. If an action doesn't conform to the truth of God's word, then it can't be done in love. That's the idea there. has to conform to God's word. We rejoice in truth. Agape love will always welcome biblical truth, and it will never resist it. I think truth and love go together like a hand and a glove. They have to go together. It's, it's the truth of God's word, the truth of his counsel. And there's a movement out there. It's the ecumenical movement that emphasizes love. It's just love. It's just all about love. We should all get along. It's just love. Yes, it, yes, we love, but it's not above the truth. It's not above the truth. We love the truth. <laughs> we love the truth. We rejoice in the truth, meaning God's revealed truth. So we cannot compromise, is one of my, my points. We can't compromise on the truth. True agape love won't do that. You want a scripture for that? Here's one, 2 John 1, 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you've heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. We obey God's truth. We, could, we, we conform to that. We do not compromise the truth. And, but people want to you know, call you out and say, oh, but you're not being loving today. Listen, listen. It is not being loving for me to accept that as truth, right? God's word says this way of life is truth. I can't say that is truth. But that's not loving. Unloving, I can still love that person. Love is actually sticking to the truth. Why? I want them to see the truth. I want them to be free from that. Debbie prayed the same kind of thing. Like to really live truly free is to live outside of those bondage of those, those worldviews, right? We need a biblical worldview. Number 12, bears all things. We're kind of back to hyperbole, by the way, here, when you see these all things here. But Paul is just kind of reaching out there. This is in verse 7. Bears all things. The Greek word, interesting word, means uh, to cover, uh, like a roof, okay? Like a thatch roof. Some versions might say always protects, if you have that kind of translation. So love always protects or love bears all things. Meaning this, I think love doesn't expose the weaknesses of another person. You, you're, you're protective of that person. You, you cover those things. You don't want your own weaknesses exposed, right? You want those protected by people you trust. You protect those as well. It always seeks to protect. It was Peter that said, love will cover a multitude of sins. That's the idea. 
right? We're not here to like expose everybody's faults and stuff. Now, listen, obviously when you got to deal with, you know, sin in the church and there's those, those steps you have to take, ap- absolutely, it's not what we're talking about here. But listen, we all have faults, we all have weaknesses, and we're not out there running around telling everybody, right? You, you, you be that brother or you be that sister for that person and you bear with them. You cover those things and bear them uh, with them. You pray for them, but you don't go out and exposing all those things. Bears all things and also believes all things. I think this love will believe the best about people. And all this has to do with relationships, right? They were having troubles with relationships. It believes all things. It isn't uh, cynical. It isn't suspicious about uh, people or untrusting. And listen, I know. I know people get hurt because they trusted someone. Everyone's going to have a story and and come up afterwards and tell me, but I got so hurt because I trusted. Can I just tell you, to love is to be vulnerable. There's no way around it. But I've been hurt. I don't care. You have to love. To love is to be vulnerable. There's only one place outside of heaven, okay, where you can lock up your heart so that it will never get touched, never get hurt by love. And you know where that place is? You don't want to be there. It's hell. <laughs> so listen, go love people. Yeah, you might get burned. Oh, but that's, hold on, I, I can't go just trusting people all the time. Like, no, you, you do. You just trust them. Now, obviously, you use discernment in things here as well. But our first reaction when trust is broken then should be to restore them, to heal them. Not to say, that's it, they broke my trust, never again to fellowship, never again. You guys, you'd have no, you'd have no church, right? We'd all be gone. Everyone would have a beef with someone else. We restore it and we keep the unity. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, right? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You also wonder about that, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Tempted to what? To not want to restore that person, but to hate them, to say, Forget it. I'm done with that guy. Broke my trust. Listen, love believes all things. I'm going to believe the best about people. I'm going to keep giving them a chance, keep giving them a chance, keep giving them a chance. I'm going to keep loving. Last one. Nope, not last one. 14, hopes all things. Hopes all things. Verse 7, love never loses faith in people, gives up on them. Listen to this quote. As long as God's grace is still operative, human failure is never final. Think about that. Think about Israel's failure. Is it final? Nope. Was Peter's failure final? Nope. What about the Corinthians' failure? It's not final. Paul's still dealing with it, right? Love hopes all things. And the last one, endures all things. That's the last part of verse 7. That's a military term there. It means to hold the position at all costs. Now, listen to this, okay? For you military boys back there, right? This is love that will not stop loving. I'm going to hold this position at all costs. At all overwhelming odds. I'm not going to stop bearing. I'm not going to stop believing. I'm not going to stop hoping. I'm not going to stop loving. I'm going to love. I'm going to love. I'm going to love. Now, listen, when you read this list, (laughs) this is hard, right? Especially when you do that old trick and you substitute your name in the place of love. Well, Kevin suffers long. Kevin is kind. Kevin does not envy. Kevin does not parade itself. Kevin's not, you you know, you see, start getting there. Oh, hit me again, Lord. Listen, you know what? We, we won't live up to that perfectly. I can't substitute my name in there, but there is one name I can substitute in there. as Christ. Christ suffers long. Christ is kind. Christ does not envy. Christ does not parade himself. He's not puffed up. That's, that's the idea here. Listen, I don't think any of us should leave today going, that's it, I'm out of the church. I could never love to that 
that's too high a calling. No, you're probably right. You could never do that outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if the power of the Holy Spirit begins to transform your life, guess what? That love becomes possible. You can talk to a lot of people that give you testimony about that. It's true. How do you get that love? Listen, pray for that love. Spend time with Christ to see that kind of love. And you can even study love. Study love. Open up the Bible, start seeing how much love is in the Bible. I'll close with this quote by Henry Morehouse. He was a young um, itinerant British evangelist. And he said this about love. I took up that word love, and I do not know how many weeks I spent studying the passages in which it occurs, till at last I could not help loving people. (laughs) I'd been feeding on love so long that I was anxious to do everybody good I came in contact with. I got full of it. It ran out of my fingers. You take up the subject of love in the Bible, you will get so full of it that all you have to do is open your lips, and a flood of the love of God flows out upon the meeting. There's no use trying to do church work without love. A doctor, a lawyer may do good work without love, but God's work cannot be done without love. And that is true. God calls us to love. This passage calls us to love. I don't care about what your gift may be or not be, but you better have love. And this is the pattern. This is the kind of love. This is the target. This is the goal. Let's pray for that kind of love. God, thank you so much for your word today. It is a challenging passage to be sure, Lord, but I thank you that you have shown us what love is, Lord, that we don't have to look at the world today to see what what love is. In fact, there's, there's no consistent picture of what love is here. It's all over the place. But Lord, your word tells us very clearly what love is. We can trust it. And Lord, yes, it is a high, high calling, agape love. As we look at that list, it just seems like what human being could live up to that. But Lord, that's why you change us. That's why you took this heart of stone and make it a, made it a heart of flesh. You gave me a, a new spirit. You made me a new creature and that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Lord, I just pray that your people would understand that in a fresh new way today, that it's not their love. It's your love. We just need to let it out. So God, just please, please plant this love within us. Let, let your spirit have free reign in our lives that the world might see the true agape love of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.